0: The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or anyone working on their difficult dialogues. Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the September 1st, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, attorney author, Adam Smyer has out a very new book entitled you can keep that to yourself, a comprehensive list of what not to say to black people for well-intentioned people of pallor. It's published by Akashic Books. In the second segment, Carrie ann farrell Hines, president of the National Women's Political Caucus, California brings milestones and a large electoral agenda in Orange County and beyond for our consideration. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is writer and attorney Adam Smyre, bringing his very new book entitled You Can Keep That to Yourself, a comprehensive list of what not to say to Black people for well-intentioned people of pallor, just out this week. If I do this right, you'll want several copies, one for your partner, one for your neighbor, one for your dentist's office, and two for your primary care doc. Ho, ho, ho. Adam practiced law at a top 10 firm and at various public entities, all while building quite a writing career for the last 14 years. He's contributed to the Johannesburg Review of Books. His debut novel, Knucklehead, was the sole title shortlisted for the 2018 Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. He completed his BA in political science at Rutgers, and his JD at New York University School of Law. He comes to us today from Oakland, California. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Adam Smyer. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, thank you. Congratulations, Adam, on this fine, compact, comprehensive, must read your application.
1: <laughs> thank you.
0: It's When I saw that Akashic Books is putting it in the humor section, maybe a few copies belong in social sciences or American history at the bookstore.
1: You know, it's funny about um, categorizing things. Yes. (laughs) It ends up where it ends up.
0: So your target audience, well-intentioned, in the eyes of the beholder, all eyes would see themselves as well-intentioned. I think that's a really elegant way to capture... A really broad width of the society is that your is that your intention?
1: I, I do agree that probably most people self-identify as well-intentioned. I wouldn't necessarily say all people, but uh, yeah, I, I I leave people to decide whether they fall into that demographic. Not necessarily my entire target audience, though. I mean, if mm-hmm. it, it, it's there's more than one target audience. Um, I wrote this book with people like me in mind, the similarly situated, the people who hear these things, not the people who say them. And my first draft was a rant. The first draft was for me. The second draft was for the similarly situated. And uh, you know, once you let something go, it goes where it goes. I, I learned that much from my last book is that, and just art in general, is that how something is received, I've come to think of it as just as valid as what was intended. You have to let it go. It's like you know, musicians. I, I'm I'm sure that successful musicians have to um, learn not to bristle when they hear what some of their fans' favorite songs are. If you released it, it might become someone's favorite song, and you just have to you know live with that. So, if anyone identifies as the target audience for this book, then they are the target audience of this book.
0: Okay, that that become that's quite clear actually, and the format. Adam, is very unique, and I understand from your publisher that it's your own design, correct? The way this, you set this up, this format.
1: This was an intense collaboration between myself and Akashic, who, because I did knucklehead my first book with them too, I've come to understand that publishing is its own art form,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that you know, the body of work that they're putting together, if you were to read it all, it would say what they're trying to say, you know, and, and I, really, I, I really get the purpose of having, I almost want to say a label because I'm also a musician, but a publisher, right. a publisher is expressing themselves in the same way that a writer is expressing themselves. And so even, even in, in terms of this book, and actually the last one too, the physical presentation was important, but especially with this one. I wish your listeners could see it. It's very cute. It's a small book, but it's a hardcover. It's not like a little red, you know. Uh,
0: it's not a pamphlet. It's right. a book. It's,
1: it's it, it is a book. It's a solid, tiny book, but I did notice it fits in a, an inside suit jacket. And so the, the conceit, I think you would call it, is that uh, well-intentioned people of power could carry it around with them. And when confronted with a person uh, darker than a brown paper bag, uh, could pre-vet their comments to that person if something, if they, if they want to make some sort of observation and, and it just something about it doesn't seem right to them. There is a little alphabet, there's little tab letters on the side and you can go to the first letter and you can, and if, if the entry is discussed in here, then you can keep it to yourself. So it's, it's a, a little piece of performance art, but it's also, apparently very informative and helpful to people and i think that's great
0: and it's a manual of sorts it's an uncanny way of reaching everyone with are you thinking of our reduced attention spans to get everybody's attention
1: it's sort of a comment on that i mean this is not a new idea this is not a new concept and many of the people before me have said it in different ways. Mm -hmm. There have been, you know, speeches that we read centuries later, Frederick Douglass, Mm -hmm. Sojourner Truth, saying the same thing, basically. And the current Gestalt includes any number of listicles and blog posts about various aspects of what I will call for now the treatment. And I thought, well, extending that further, how about a list? And it wasn't exactly that I thought that a list would work because I don't think of myself as the the person who's going to actually explain this to people. I just thought it was worth, I, I thought it was a fun way to approach my take on this aspect of this issue.
0: Fun and dead serious. And I choose everything advisedly, all that was
1: Yes. And thank you for that. Because, because even with something that is humorous, there are parts that should be serious. There should be substance, right? Or that's almost part of the humor is the substance and, and vice versa in a way. And so when I actually was polishing and writing this and thinking about what was in it, I wanted it to actually be what it purported to be. I didn't wanna just say, oh, look, here's a funny, here's a cover and a blurb and just some filler. I wanted the contents of the book to actually be what it purported to be. And I'm I'm pleased. There's another period when you let something go when, when you're afraid you're gonna immediately regret what's in it or what's not in it, but so far so good.
0: So, and it's, it's an, Adam, a little bit like a, the floor level panels in an elevator. And it just keep it pushes so many buttons as there are floors in a skyscraper.
1: <laughs> Interesting.
0: So it seems that from reading some of your other writings, and including uh, Knucklehead and some Johannesburg Review books, that the racism in all sectors of your life in San Francisco, the Bay Area would be a revelation to perhaps the majority of Americans that like you talk about White people in San Francisco, while you were back in Birmingham, is how you said it in one of your writings. That, So besides that example you give, it's the checklist that you have to run through all the time while living, driving, walking Black. Uh, yeah,
1: knucklehead had a lot of that. There might have been a line, something about um, California is basically Ohio with Oakland stuck in the middle, <laughs> something to that effect. And and I know that since having been to Cape Town and, and, you know, leaving America for the first time, going to Africa for the first time for a book festival after I wrote Knucklehead, seeing some of the similarities and some of the differences. But yeah, there is um, some sort of fantasy that Berkeley is post-racial, you know. <laughs> uh, they would such people might be disappointed. I mean, I I was born and raised in New York, and New York's supposed to be pretty progressive, too, and in some ways it is, and in some ways it is not.
0: As evidenced, again, as recently as some of the Republican National Convention contributions from New York City people that were uh, right the the day before. So my guest, if you just joined us, is attorney author Adam Smyre with a very new book out entitled you can keep that to yourself. A comprehensive list of what not to say to Black people for well-intentioned people of pallards, published by Akashic Books, just out. So I want to really, it, it's your literary skills, and they're bilingual. They're, I mean, meaning your abilities in fictional and non-fictional writing. When did you start composing literature?
1: I've been writing my whole life. I have some Early stories I wrote when I was very young, uh, some of which uh, got me. It, it's almost the same review I'm looking for now. I have a mm-hmm. story I wrote that was supposed to be a horror story. It says, you know, A plus, see me because I think it was a little disturbing to the teacher to, <laughs> to read some of uh, to read a little kid writing about some of that stuff. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it was. It, I I've always enjoyed writing. I started writing seriously. About 14 years ago, like you said, in 06, I went to my first Vona Voices retreat. That's a week-long workshop for writers of color. That's in what they- setting geographically? I'm just curious. It started out in the Bay Area, which is where I discovered it. And I believe now they are at the University of Miami. They've moved oh, around a little bit in the last okay. few years, but it's always some, some university. There are two one-week workshops in a row, top shelf faculty. And it is a place for writers of color to actually, to to have their actual work critiqued rather than have to listen to the Mm -hmm. reader's reaction to their work in the context of our society, to wit, uh, why do you have so many black characters? It's a a place to be free of that for a week.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, I'd love it if you could read us a sample of what is in You Can Keep That to Yourself, Anne. Would you be so kind? I would love to read a couple
1: of selections. Um, They're all my children, but the ones that I've selected today, the first one is, is Ignorance. The word ignorance is your great absolver, a panacea second only to white lady tears, When three hillbillies drag a black man to death, you fall over yourself, condemning their ignorance. Except that it isn't condemnation, is it? Because ignorance is, by definition, innocent. It isn't chosen, it can't be immediately helped, and with a little effort, it can be completely cured. That's sweet. Obviously, evil isn't evil when it happens to us, or when you identify with the people doing it. Please keep that to yourself. Mm. Yeah, I hear ignorance a lot these mm. days. Um, one more? Yes, if you would be so kind. One more, let's, looking, I'm looking, I'm, I'm going to the L's on my little handy side tab here, and I, I am about to read you long time ago. It's another one I hear a lot. You like to pretend that racism happened a long time ago. For the sake of your comfort, you would have me believe that next week's lynchings were a long time ago. The implication being that if an event was a long time ago, it is irrelevant today and need never be spoken of. Okay, oh, happy Washington's birthday, and happy 4th of July, happy Thanksgiving, happy Columbus Day, Merry Christmas, remember the Alamo. I guess never forget is just for you.
0: Ah. Flatten me, man. When I read that, it just flatten <laughs> me. And it's when just anybody who's visiting me, out comes my copy, and that I read to my, who's ever with me. So, thank you for for those readings. And I want to. You're talking about the the lynchings that were um, that will happen next week. It's I don't I can't even put myself in a mindset a uh, uh, persons of color but we're talking we're talking about black people because you make a distinction in your writings between black people and persons of color you're about writing about the black person's perspective right uh-huh so you you know there's there's more coming you just and you don't know you don't know when you leave the door that's why i was talking about the checklist a little earlier you've got to go through a checklist every time you're out in the world every time you leave your front door So I mean,
1: when I wrote this, and I'm talking about next week's lunch, I wrote this a year ago, some of the very worst stuff hadn't even happened yet.
0: That's, that's the the dread of when people think, well, that just happened. And and if anybody's paying attention, they know that there's no full stop, period, end of that occurrence. It's just, yeah, no, no, that's true. So I I would like uh, the, the craziness that has been taking place since January 2017 is the opportunity for all Americans, especially those with privilege, to experience, to examine the sensation of being defiled. It was very, I felt very defiled watching how federal property was used for a partisan campaign in the Republican National Conventions last week. White people could call it norms being broken. Perhaps Black Americans would call it an education of a pre-existing condition, Adam?
2: <laughs> I
1: like that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's like I said, this, this is nothing new and, you know, the, People, a person's take on the current situation, it's going to vary on the person, their their personality, their background. I've been through, the cynical side of me wants to say I've been through this cycle enough times to have a pretty good idea how it's going to go. And honestly, if you need to watch a man be slowly murdered on video with your own eyes to think that maybe something's wrong, you're still not going to get it. It's not... It, it, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking for an atrocity so horrible or a, a, a selection of words so perfect that people suddenly become okay, uh, b- become not okay with black people being killed for fun. You're either okay with black people being killed for fun or you're not. And it almost doesn't matter what happens around you. That's, that's an internal thing, my opinion.
0: So to that point then, the i'm wondering then what your long view is you're telling us actually in the sense what your long view was in june as the protests in support of black lives matter grew as we see that receding even as soon as this week
1: you know protests are just one tool there are other new things happening this week, and and, and to be honest full disclosure yes. i have not been following the news 100 percent closely because i'm not i'm still not completely over that man being slowly murdered on video in broad daylight in front of everybody. And as part of just mental hygiene, uh, a person couldn't possibly keep up with all of the lynchings. It's terrorism. To take it all in and to become overwhelmed by it would allow it to serve its purpose. So I sit out periods because it's just, it's one, it's never ending. And it's just over the top. It's just too much. So, um, But I am vaguely aware that, there is still opposition, the, the, the problem persists unchanged and yet there's still opposition and I'm grateful for that. I don't want to say it doesn't mean anything, it's hard for me to feel like racism's going to stop even in November, <laughs> uh, you know.
0: As you say in the in your July publication in the Joburg Review of Books, and I'm, I'm just going to quote you here, um, even I can agree that by 2420, things will almost certainly be much better, end of quote.
1: Yeah, yeah just give us another 400 years and this is going to look pretty backwards what's happening right now. I do believe that. Four years, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I guess I, I just want for the immediate community of listeners, I, I want to acknowledge what we are processing locally. UC Irvine is definitely playing defense on this with, it's called the Black, thriving initiative. Between 2009 and 2019, Black faculty at the campus doubled to 3.9%. And the Black student population at this point is 3% of the total population. And the faculty staff neighborhood could be a bit more neighborly and act in a more cosmopolitan way about our Black neighbors.
1: Did you say it doubled to 3.9%?
0: Yes, woohoo! In ten years, yes. So, and yeah. So we we've got we've got our work cut out for us, and I think we can hold our chancellor is a, a political scientist by training, and the University of California president recently appointed Michael Drake was previously the chancellor of this campus before he went to Ohio State University. So we can see where. The the boxes were checked, but we've got we've got a lot of work ahead. Mm.
1: Do you so, anticipate that work happening?
0: Well, uh, there are platforms that are working hard, but it's again the, the the I don't think I think we have that we have a lot of headwinds in reversing the privileged culture here. And so, Adam, how is it going to work? The, the virtual book tour ahead of you. Virtually, I mean, it's it's
1: happening right now. It, when Knucklehead came out, I did some traveling, I got around. I actually went for I went to I ended up going to Cape Town, but here it's going to just be a lot a lot of virtual events, and that's that's not just my reality. That's that's the new reality, and and. That's another art form I think that is developing. I think people will get better at it. I think listeners and, and viewers will get more used to it. And we'll see where it goes. It's certainly better than going to a super spreader event, trying to sell
0: books. I'm not interested in no. doing more harm than good. No, but it is my experience. It's really, really difficult to connect with the writer. as Speaking as a consumer, it is a work in progress. And I, I hope that, you will find your way. I think with the sort of the novelty of your approach and that it's not topical, Adam. It's, an, it's only a 400-year project <laughs> uh, with, and 400 years on both sides of this present moment. That with the content and the format and all that, I hope that you have a good chance of really, really connecting because it's something else. There won't be any litquakes. The litquake happened before the lockdowns. Litquakes in October, it it will happen. It will happen virtually and I will be there. Yes, I imagine that. Well, thank you, Adam, for your time and be safe out there. Thank you for having me and you too, be safe, be well. And good luck on your tour. My guest has been attorney, author, Adam Smyre with a very new book entitled, You Can Keep That to Yourself, a comprehensive list of what not to say to black people for well-intentioned people of pallor published by Akashic Books, just out this week, available at the Akashic Books website or your favorite independent book dealer. We'll be right back with Carrie Ann Farrell Hines, president of National Women's Political Caucus of California. Don't go away. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Carrie Ann Farrell Hines, an attorney currently working as a consultant on community affairs and strategic development with the Public Policy Institute of Santa Monica College, a social justice advocate. She is the president of the National Women's Political Caucus of California and president of the LA County Commission for Women. In addition, She is an appointee to the California Board of Accountancy and directory of the National Women's Political Caucus, LA, Westside Political Action Committee. Carrie Ann was a legislative assistant on Capitol Hill for the American Civil Liberties Union, practiced general business law, family law, and public interest agencies before switching to political and policy-related work. She serves on several boards, including the ACLU of Southern California affiliate, the National Women's Political Caucus LA West Chapter, the Vice President of Political Action, National Women's Political Caucus California, the Women's Political Committee, and Close the Gap California. Carrie Ann Farrell Hines completed her Bachelor's of Arts in English at UC Berkeley and her Juris Doctor at Loyola Law School. She comes to us today from West Los Angeles. Welcome back to Ask Leader, Carrie Ann Farrell Hines. Thank
2: you, and I'll say Go Bears. <laughs> okay.
0: Right now, we're, we're celebrating the 19th Amendment. It's celebration is a bit complicated with our fuller appreciation of the fact that suffrage came late to the most reliable demographic group of voters, African American women. So I'm sure NWPC has taken stock in what ways,
2: carrie Ann? Well, we have focused on how we can make sure that we are supporting women who are representative of the communities that comprise California, that they look like our cities and counties across California, and also that we are supporting candidates, particularly supporting candidates of color during these times. We know that representation uh, you know, by women of color is really low. It's not reflective of our demographics and that there are barriers to their involvement in city councils and in the state legislature and, you know, on up, tickets up the ballot. So I think that is our best way of addressing the ways in which the 19th amendment and building political power has not represented, you know, women of color, communities of color. I think that's, that's the best way that we can sort of close that gap on that issue. And we'll have a
0: chance to talk about it's been actually quite a banner last year with the leadership all over the country that women of color in elected office or who attempted elected office that have been involved and finally you know through the i'm thinking two of the if everybody can remember the impeachment hearings there there was some pretty high profile and we'll talk about them so let's go to the pipeline of candidates and actually the staffs to the candidates' campaigns. From local government elections to the federal, let's have you start with the National Women's Political Caucus role in Senator Kamala Harris's nomination as the Democratic vice presidential candidate for 2020.
2: Well, we're really proud, as you can imagine, with you know Senator Harris's uh, selection as the Democratic nominee for vice president. Uh, but I do want to just make a mention that we were proud of the number, the large number of women, particularly women of color, who were even being considered. And uh, and I can say that most of those women have been supported by an NWPC caucus around the country because you know we are a national organization; we have caucuses, uh, you know, in you know several states around the country, and so women like, you know, Senator Tammy Duckworth and obviously Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congresswoman Val Demings and Assemblywoman Karen Bass, all have been supported by NWPC caucuses throughout their legislative careers. So I want to just make that mention, but Senator um, Harris, particularly NWPC caucus local chapters and our state caucus have supported her from her candidacy and service as district attorney in San Francisco. And then we were early supporters of her campaign for the attorney general of California position when she took on LA district attorney, Steve Cooley. Yes. Uh, and I you remember know, the ballot. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and so we were instrumental in endorsing her early and in supporting her campaign. And then also we were supporters of her campaign for the US Senate uh, when uh, Senator Barbara Boxer retired. And that was a little bit more tricky for us because we actually had two women who were longtime NWPC supported candidates in that race who ended up in the top two? Congresswoman Loretta Sanchez out of Orange, Orange County, County there, yes. Senator, you know, Kamala Harris. And it was a rare instance in which we actually did a dual endorsement for the two women who were running because we had supported both of them. Was uh, that
0: kind but- of a messy
2: process? I mean, was
0: that a, a difficult dialogue internally? Or did there was was there
2: something else going on there uh you know it 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 was um not messy but it is it's like family you know you are maybe in disagreement about you know the approach or you have to take opposing positions on an issue but you all are still united in goal which is to increase women's political power to increase the power of our voice in legislative bodies and there was always a commitment that no matter who won, we would be there for the woman when she, you know, when she succeeded, whichever one succeeded, because we knew that she was going to promote policies and legislation that protects women's access to reproductive health care. And lifts up issues that impact women and girls, you know, you know, disproportionately. So it 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 can be uncomfortable. The the the, you know discussions get you know a little hairy sometimes when you know you have those situations. But you know, honestly, that's where we would like to move to. We would like to move to a place where we are faced with having to pick amongst multiple women, because up until now we have not had women. And even when we have women, they are oftentimes at a disadvantage to male candidates who have locked up endorsements, who have solidified political relationships. And I bring that up to say that that's why it's so important that we do our pipeline work. Because the places where successful candidates make their, are able to build the foundation of their political careers, is oftentimes at the local level. They are elected to local offices, and they build relationships and alliances that help them to move up through the political pipeline into these higher level offices. And now we have Senator Kamala Harris, who is in the vice presidential nomination spot. Yes.
0: So you're talking about the, the local
2: elections
0: and th- that whole dynamic did play out in the March primary, which was for my county board of district, board of supervisors, that Ashley Aiken running against Don Wagner. And it was very much that dynamic where Don Wagner had quite a few endorsements in place, quite a substantial amount of funding. I think Ashley Aitken didn't have the advantage arriving on the scene for that campaign at an early enough time. So, but that's, a, that's one of those difficulties that NWPC faces. Right.
2: And we, you don't want to say, you know, oh, you shouldn't run for office unless you have so many endorsements or unless you've You've raised so much money because that's not always a winning strategy, right? You know, we have well, we many examples. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. We have many examples. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, So, but at the same time, we do know that where candidates, where women candidates, you know, make the decision to run, and they may be greener than other, you know, candidates who are running, it just means that it may be a heavier lift for us. And that's where our network becomes really valuable to these candidates and why we try to get in and endorse them as early as possible so we can be another resource for them, whether it's raising money or whether it's building out their networks of support and for getting the word out about their campaigns.
0: And I want to quickly make a distinction when you're talking about a candidate being greener, now that we're dealing with the global climate catastrophe, right. greener yeah. might mean actually a lesser seasoned candidate. Exactly. A nascent, a nascent candidate. A
2: nascent candidate. A nascent candidate. Nascent, a nascent candidate. candidate right? Green, Green has
0: a, a really strong other. new kind of inference there. So so let's go back though to other successful candidates that National Women's Political Caucus has been involved with. Katie Porter, who right. won in the, the midterm elections for actually active the congressional district where I am murdered the radio station is, and Cotty Petrie Norris that's representing
2: us in the assembly. Right, so our Orange County Caucus was instrumental in helping to flip those seats, and they are doing a lot of work right now in trying to protect those seats. Those I think it sounds like Congresswoman Porter has a slightly easier time then Assemblywoman uh, Petrie Norris. However, Assemblywoman Petrie Norris is one of our frontline protected candidates. I'll just remind you that because we are a part of a national organization, we are NWPC an California and then our local caucuses, we only can uh, support with finances state candidates, our federal PAC which means the body that supports congressional candidates or senatorial candidates that is housed with our national organization. So we cannot um, support Congresswoman Porter and also Congresswoman uh, Linda Sanchez, who has been, you know, endorsed by NWPC many times and supported. it. Uh, we can only support. Uh, yeah. So we can only support Congresswoman Porter with our time. Uh, we have to do, you know, commit our treasure through our national organization. But uh, Assemblywoman Petrie Norris is one of our frontline candidates to protect in this election. We also have endorsed a number of women there in Orange County for the state assembly. Um, we're fortunate in that we have increased the number of women who are serving in the state legislature. We're actually up to 38 percent of the Senate and 29% in the assembly, those are some of the highest numbers that we've had um, yeah. in history. And there are several candidates there in Orange County who we've endorsed for, the, who are mounting challenges for the assembly. Melissa Fox in 8068, and uh, Deidre Wynn, who's running in AD72, are two women who, and I believe there's, those are, I think those are the main ones that are there in Orange County who we are, you know, supporting in their efforts to get us two more seats, you know, in the state legislature, you know, where there are women who are pro-choice, who support progressive policies and, you know, who are supportive of NWPC, California's bottom line issues.
0: So I just want to reintroduce my guest. She's Carrie Ann Pharrell-Hines, National Women's Political Caucus for California and President of the Community Affairs Consultancy, Santa Monica College Public Policy Institute and the LA County Commission for Women President here on Ask a Leader, Radio KUCI. And I'd like, you've already started talking about the down ticket. And I want to back up one moment while we're talking about This now political season, this campaign season, how is NWPC promoting voters participating and voting all the way down ticket? How are you making it sexier and more essential to voters?
2: Well, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, that is a challenge. And I'm grateful to my board and to our local volunteers who really have pivoted. To embrace the virtual platforms that we're able to use Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. reach out to folks, and in some ways, we have taken advantage of this. You know, says some say, crisis tunity, to the you know the intersection of a crisis and an opportunity. We have people are more receptive to attending events and participating to get to know candidates, even where they might not be in that you know direct region because we're doing things virtually. So you can host a meet and greet, a virtual meet and greet and invite women from all over California rather than you know invite women that are just in your in your region to meet the candidate and then potentially contribute to the candidate. And I just oh, I'll back up and say that you know one thing that's notable about NWPC, Is that we're one of the oldest organizations, longest standing organizations that supports women all the way down the ticket. We endorse in every race on the ticket, whether it's your you know city clerk, your mosquito abatement board. Water districts. Water districts, most definitely. Water districts. We have a number of women who have come through water districts into the assembly and into higher office, community college boards of trustees. We endorse at every level if a woman comes to seek endorsement. Equally important, we train women to run for office. And we have a very accessible campaign training program that we offer. We offer everything from a multi-session, you know, how to run a campaign, how to be a candidate education program that the national organization has developed Two one off events that we host. And again, this is where the virtual platforms have really made a difference for us. Uh, we just hosted this morning a training, a mm-hmm. virtual training to train women who are interested in helping with local campaigns. It was focused on uh, messaging, communications, uh, how to uh, organize and manage volunteers, how to recruit volunteers. And we were able to offer that at a fairly nominal fee and people are able to get access and support from seasoned campaign professionals who might normally charge, you know, significant amount of money to give their advice and their support. But because we're able to do it on virtual platforms, it really makes it accessible to people no matter where they are. And, you know, here in California, just this last several months, we have been approached by women who are running in places like, you know, the outer reaches of Northern California, That may not be as amenable or supportive to NWPC's NWPC's issues, but there are women who are running for city councils and who are running for the assembly who can use our support. And because of these virtual platforms, we're now able to give that support. Were you recruiting people to
0: these workshops or is, uh, is there an easy way for listeners to join in on that reindeer game?
2: Yes, we recruited through our partners, but we we advertise information about these uh, trainings on our website, and that is www.nwpcca.org. So that's the okay. acronym of National Women's Political Caucus California and uh, there folks can subscribe to our website so that they can get alerts whenever we post new things to the website. They can also become a member. We are a membership organization. The membership fee is nominal and that helps us to recruit candidates, to train candidates. And then we also have a pack where we you know, solicit contributions so that we can provide financial support to candidates as well.
0: I'm just, this sort of begs a little question here. Has a candidate ever approached you for support and you turned them away because you know what their record is on the issues?
2: You know, I can't say that we've had to turn them, uh, a candidate, away because generally, I mean, in my own, you know, anecdotal history and okay. remembrance I can't remember a candidate coming to us who was not supportive of our bottom line issues. Okay. Uh, I was actually, before I became president, I was the vice president for political action for the state organization. So I was coordinating all of the endorsements for women who are running for you know state offices. And and uh, and I and before that, I was the director for political action for my local uh, chapter in WPC LA Westside. And that chapter endorsed women who are running for races on the west side of Los Angeles County. So from Malibu to the north, the airport to the south, and then about mid-city and Mm -hmm. all the little cities that are in there. And the one place where we might have some issues were with candidates who maybe were not as informed about what it meant to be absolutely pro-choice. Like sometimes we would have candidates who would, find our opposition to parental notification laws a little sticky. And oftentimes uh, there's only one occasion that I can remember of in the dozens of candidates who I've talked to who have sought endorsement, there's only one time where after educating the candidate and you know talking her through her position on or perspective on parental notification laws, you know, did not change and she was not eligible to be okay. uh, endorsed. And I'll say that's another way in which we, another service that we provide, you know, to to candidates and to community members is, you know, education on the issues. You know, we just held a public education forum a couple of weeks ago that featured former superintendent of public instruction and former California gubernatorial candidate Delane Easton uh, talking with women who were running for uh, local offices about how to uh, manage their campaigns for school boards in the context of what's happening right now, you know, and actually Orange County Board of Education member. Becky Gomez participated in that forum, and a recording of that forum will be available shortly on our website as well. But what they were talking about is uh, they were giving candidates who are running for local school boards advice about how to navigate the calls for reimagining and reorganizing resources and school budgets around policing. You know, so Mm. addressing these calls for, you know, defunding the police or refunding the police or, you know, however, whatever language you want to use, but really evaluating how resources for public safety are spent and how to talk about public safety and budgeting for candidates who are running for school boards. So we provide that kind of support for candidates as well. And that's important particularly for these local pipeline candidates because oftentimes they don't have the resources to hire consultants who can help them to become educated on what it's like to budget you know, a big school district or how to communicate you know, messages effectively or even having access to you know, people who have experience you know, yeah. can, and can mentor candidates in how they can become a good candidate and talk to the issues that are important in their communities.
0: So does the National Women's Political Caucus weigh in on statewide propositions?
2: No, we don't. Well, it's not our It's not our our pattern and our practice. Uh, And that's more of a capacity issue. We do have a public policy committee uh, that we just uh, instituted in the last year or so. And their focus has been on uh, supporting the legislative priorities of elected to uh, support our bottom line issues. So we uh, supported the Stronger California uh, legislative agenda this year, and you know we took positions on some bills that, like I said, were in alignment with our bottom line issues. But we don't really have the capacity yet to become major advocates around propositions. I take that back, uh, and let me amend that a little bit. Where there have been propositions on reproductive health issues, we have weighed in.
0: But okay. um, outside, I was of wondering about that. Health, yeah,
2: yeah, because policy
0: aligns with what your charter is for what makes your candidates endorsable and supportable and that kind of thing but so like let's say proposition 15 that's going to reconsider the commercial properties valuation for right. uh, assessment so something like that wouldn't be it's a huge budget impact right. and that wouldn't be something national Women's political caucus would touch
2: not necessarily, okay. and like, like I said, that's more of a policy. I mean, a more of a capacity issue, not yes. so much of a policy. You know, I mean, there are actually a number of of issues on the ballot, quite frankly, that we can you know look at through a gender lens. Okay. Um, the, you know, mm-hmm. the attempt to, you know, overturn AB5 around gig economy workers. Women are part of the economy that are impacted by that, by that those laws. So you um, are going to weigh in on, on that? No, no, no. I'm just saying that there are a lot of propositions we that could be viewed through a gender lens and through but, a, you yeah. know, NWPC lens, but we just don't have the capacity to get engaged okay. with them yet.
0: Okay, so <laughs> let's... Know,
2: Okay, thanks. Excuse me. So let's talk to the
0: capacity, how much, uh, uh, talk about those alliances that the National Women's Political Caucus has, and has expanded going into this general election. And I'm obviously thinking, as we talked in preparation for this interview, I talked to, and I'd like you to talk about the she, the people kinds of organizations that, that have they all helped, you've all sort of expanded each other's capacity, talk, sort of enumerate which organizations have, contributed to making National Women's Political Caucus have more capacity?
2: Well, I would say that our efforts have contributed to their work. Well, it's a, you know, I think it's reciprocal. Um, but we have worked in, you know, coalition with organizations like Emerge California, Close the Gap California. We have relationships with groups like Black Women's Civic Participation Organization at the national level. So it really, our coalition work is really around supporting the candidates more so than being a voice or you know, a, um, you know, a commentator. Our work is really focused on that grassroots work of helping candidates ensure that they can win, making sure that candidates have the resources that they need to get to voters and to get their message out to voters and to raise funds and also to get endorsements. Um, because, the, or, you know, there are several organizations, many organizations, Emily, organizations like Emily's List and, you know, Planned Parenthood and NARAL, our candidates, they need to get those kinds of endorsements as well because they often come with resources and monies that they need to be able to build out the campaign infrastructure that's important and necessary for winning these elections you know so sometimes that coalition work looks like us making introductions to those or other organizations utilizing our networks to make those introductions to other organizations that have the money resources or sometimes that work looks like other organizations bringing candidates to our attention and saying, you know, hey, we've got a candidate who is running in the Inland Empire and there's not an organization on the ground that can really help her with getting the volunteers that she needs or help her with, you know, messaging and can you all help? And we're able to step in and provide support in that way as well. So it's a reciprocal relationship, you know, that we're that we're, you know, operating in. And right now it's so critical because thankfully there are a record number of women who are running and there this is a great opportunity for all of these women's groups to come together and to make sure that we're successful in November. It's critical that we work together to be successful in November. We really are, our lives literally depend on it right now.
0: I want to ask about a different group, the Asian American Pacific Islander. There's a multitude of grassroots organizations, AAPI Rising and others. Are they all in coalition with you?
2: Yes, yes. And uh, we have members of our board, of our state board, who are involved in some of those organizations. And again, you know, that's how we are able to leverage those relationships, you know, where a board member is, you know, an activist with another organization, and that brings that synergy together, or where a member may be, you know, a member of another organization that we aren't familiar with, and they bring them along. We do not have an AAPI woman in the Assembly right now. Oh, really? That's huh. the case. I, I believe that's the case. Uh, and so that's why you know Deidre Wynn's um, campaign is so critical and so important. We did have another woman who was running for the state legislature, Annie Cho, and she didn't advance. She was right. she ran in the spring to fill Christy Smith's seat when she when she decided to run for the congressional seat, CD twenty five, but. That is an area where we need to, quite frankly, do better, you know, as a state in, you know, increasing that representation in our state legislature. And that her district is in the Anaheim vicinity, correct?
0: The 72nd? Correct. Okay. So when does the Get Out the Vote begin? The, and has it already started? How are you getting that going?
2: And when? It's always, you know, everything should be viewed as a get out the vote, you know, you should always be talking to people about voting, especially right now where, you know, we're finding our post office, you know, services are threatened, and there's an attack on vote by mail efforts, which, you know, is kind of really disconcerting here in California, because, you know, we had just so successfully changed our voting to expand in our primary voting in our primary. Yeah. And, you know, to now see this attack on it is, is really disconcerting. But yeah, so we're always talking about voting, the importance of voting, reaching out to new voters or voters who may be apathetic or who may be, you know, disenchanted with politics. Public service, unfortunately, is getting a really bad rap. So we try to talk to people about the important things that government does. They, they keep the lights on, they keep the street lights going, and, you know, they make sure that the roads are, you know, are paved and everything, you know, a- across the board. But the, you know, sort of more traditional GOTV will probably start around mid-September because uh, vote-by-mail ballots will begin to drop that first week of October. October 5th. Yes. yes. So, So we will be making a really concerted push to get people to vote early and to make sure that they get their ballots early. And, you know, and if they don't have, get their ballots in that first week to make sure that they follow up and give them the information that they need, that's one of the things that we're advising all of our candidates to do. Everyone is advising all candidates to make sure that they're Websites and you know their social media platforms front and center instruct folks on how to get their ballots and how to follow and check up on their ballots. Right. Um, that's a critical. That's going to be a critical part of all of our GOTV efforts this year as we're faced with campaigning under um, a pandemic and amongst unrest around you know racial you know injustice and racial inequality. It is really going to be most important for candidates to be communicating that information. And for groups like ours who have credibility and reputations and, and respect in the community, for us to be communicating that information to our members and our supporters as well. Well, I, Carrie Ann Farrell-Hines, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. I am so glad to be back. I enjoyed talking with you before. and crazy as it is, so much has changed, you know, since, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, since we last talked and we actually wanted to talk just before the primary. And even, you know, we talked about talking after the primary and then literally was the whole it. world turned upside down. Yeah. Totally. So I, I, I really enjoy talking with you, Claudia. I so appreciate you uh, reaching out to me again and i definitely want to talk to you after november <laughs> yes we're going
0: we are going to talk about it cuz there's going to be results and because we know that there's a steep climb we think it was steep getting here but it's going to get steeper there's we don't even know what we're in for right now so we'll we'll do the dusting up after all of that's happening when, when we know what's happening because it's right. going to take a long time to count all these ballots and maybe maybe that's one thing that NWPC can do along with all kinds of grassroots organizations is to sort of seed the sensibility that we can wait we can wait for every last vote to be counted. We, we are can. patient. We saw yeah. patients in the year 2000. The public yes. could wait for an entire month with the uncertainty of the outcome of the general election of the year 2000. But maybe that's something that all political organizations, because there's going to be a huge echo chamber in social media that says, This isn't supposed to happen. It should have been the line drawn here on November 3rd. So maybe that's part of your get out the vote campaign is to say, Mm -hmm. hang on and wait out the final vote count. Is that part of your
2: speaking point? Most definitely. And I will say that that is not unprecedented for us uh, within WPC because again, tying it back to, you know, vice presidential nominee, Senator Kamala Harris in her race for attorney general, that race was not determined for several weeks, and I actually was a count. I participated in watching them the monitoring count the votes, yeah, monitoring the vote counting uh, because on election night, her opponent Steve Cooley, you know was declared victorious by our local newspaper by the l a Times, I think and it was actually several weeks later that it was determined that then District Attorney Harris was the winner. And she won right here in LA County, you know, so it's not unprecedented for us to have to advocate patients, but also to advocate for volunteers to come out to serve in the role of poll watching and, and vote count monitoring. So yeah, we're we're already trained in it. We're ready to go. We're ready to go. Well, Carrie Ann, Thank you so much
0: for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you for having me. My guest was Carrie Farrell-Hines, president of National Women's Political Caucus, California, president of the Community Affairs Consultant, Santa Monica College, Public Policy Institute, and LA County Commission for Women. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, UCI epidemiologist Andrew Neumer returns to the show to continue to raise our literacy about the COVID-19 pandemic. Next on these airwaves is SoCal New with the Italo Connection. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Remember to confirm your voter registration, keep that mask on, and count your nose in the census.